So grateful to Chris and his team. You realize they are playing like seven times tonight. They're going from here over to that room, up in the attic, the church next door. That's what they do. They serve. So thank you, Chris. And uh, he picked my favorite songs tonight. It's good to sing those songs, isn't it? To be reminded of the rich theology that is in those lyrics. Well, we have handouts in the back. Did everybody get a handout? I think we might have run out. Are there still handouts in the back? There are? There are still some. Okay. So feel, feel free to get a handout. Grateful for the opportunity to kick off this series. As Ken was announcing that I would have the privilege to, to speak most of the time. And uh, Mike Goins is going to preach two of the six messages. Grateful for him as well. I was just thinking about what would be beneficial for me, what would be beneficial for you. And I hope that the topics that we've chosen will do that, will be an encouragement for us. I guess because of a lot of the counseling and discipleship that I have the privilege to do, these are things that come up a lot, things that come up often. And they're not just in others' lives, it's in my life, and maybe it's in your life. And so hopefully this series will encourage us, give us hope, and teach us how to apply truth in practical ways. Because life is full of problems, isn't it? We get this, don't we? I mean, do I really need to convince you that life is full of problems? It's a little bit like the guy who goes to the doctor suffering from heartburn. He goes to the doctor and the doctor says, here's a, a list of ways to get heartburn. The guy's like, I know this. I, I, I already have it. I know how to get it. How do I get rid of it, right? You're like, well, Chris, we know. We struggle with some of these things. Maybe not all of them, but many of them. And often one sinful response to a problem in life can result in more sinful responses. It's a little bit like the guy who lies to get out of a lie. You ever tried that? Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. When we lie to get out of a lie, why are we lying the second time? Because the first lie worked so well. I mean, think about that. So we're lying now to get out of a second lie, and then what happens the third time? Yeah, lying, when does it end? In many ways, it's like those lines of dominoes. Have you ever uh, gotten on YouTube or seen those videos of those people that spend days setting up dominoes? Has anyone done that before? Any, do we have any domino setter-uppers? Yeah? It takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? I love those things, not setting them up. I had a friend who spent days, absolute hours, setting one up in his room. I walk into the room having no idea what he's doing. These things are all over, elaborate. They're knocking over bowling balls and all kinds of things. You know, it's one of those elaborate ones. I walk in there. He's like, look what I've done. And it's instantly what happened to my hand. I was like, no. I mean, how does he expect me not to touch that first domino? It was like temptation. And so sure enough, I touch it. And he's like, what have you done? And I'm like, yes. One domino. And what happens? Chain reaction. 
I think I made him cry. We're still friends, though, so he got over it. Sometimes we find ourselves down a road wondering how we got there, how that first domino knocked the other ones in line. And you say, how did I get here? Maybe your marriage has soured. Maybe you have rebellious kids. They don't even want to talk to you, let alone have you in their life. Maybe it's financial problems. You go, how did we end up with this much debt? Maybe it's preventable medical issues. Speaking of heartburn, I just got back from vacation. Anybody been on a cruise? Oh, yeah. So just a few of us. Well, for those of you who have, okay, yes, thank you. Yeah, I know you guys have been. For those of you who have not been on a cruise, it's all you can eat 24-7. Yeah. Yeah, you want me to give you a profile? For one lunch, I literally went to the dessert table and filled a plate full of desserts. I had six different desserts for lunch. I would do it again. You think I struggled with heartburn? It felt like everything on my inside wanted to be on my outside. It was killing me. Is that preventable? Yeah. Did I want to prevent it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so on it goes. Maybe we check the scoreboard of life, find that our problems are up in the ninth inning. We seem to be losing more than winning. If we took the time to trace back through each decision, each domino, setting it back up, where did it begin? I wonder what we would find. That at each fork in the road, we had to make a choice. Am I going to please God or am I going to please myself? Is there another option? What does 2 Corinthians 5.9 say? We make it our ambition, whether home or absent, to what? To be pleasing to him. We make it our ambition. Paul says, our goal. This is the number one desire in my life, whether home or absent. Home with the Lord, absent here in my body. In this life or the life to come, it doesn't matter. For all of eternity, my number one goal is to please him. And as we know, Jesus himself said, you cannot serve two masters, right? You're either going to love this one and hate this one or love this one and hate this one. You cannot serve what? Say it. Two masters, God and mammon, God and money. And when money is our master, who is really behind that? It's us, all of the things that money buys, the privilege, the prestige, the reputation. You can't serve two masters. Now, for many of us, this is not theoretical. We've lived this. Point of fact, I have lived this. See, God saved me when I was 17 years old, 11th grade in high school, Los Angeles, California. In high school, I started out strong. My faith was vibrant. I was serving in ministry. I immediately was in the music team, playing the keyboards in a band. I was discipling other high school students, even as a senior in high school. I was on leadership team, staff and training. I was evangelizing. I was going back to Kennedy High School, my public high school, and proclaiming Christ to my unsaved friends. My faith was growing. 
And I was changing by the grace of God. Two years later, at the end of my first year in college, things began to change, and I began to struggle. And the dominoes began to fall, one by one. See, I would be tempted with something, some sin, some struggle. I'd briefly debate the temptation in my mind. I'd give in to that sin, feel incredibly guilty, sometimes for the wrong reasons, sometimes for the right reasons. Again, what are some wrong reasons to feel guilty? I got caught. I have to suffer the consequences of my sin. I feel bad that I hurt you. I I really do. I feel bad that I hurt you. Not enough to change. I mean, I'm going to do it again, but I do feel bad now. Sometimes for the right reasons, because I hated disobeying my Lord. I felt like I was spitting on the cross. I'd feel sorry for myself, sad, depressed even. And then finally, sometimes days, sometimes weeks later, I would get around to confessing my sin to God. God, I know I did it again. Forgive me. Forgive me. But it was cyclical. It was cyclical. I felt like I was trapped. I felt like I was stuck. Like I couldn't get out of it. It I was just going through patterns. Pattern cycles. In many ways, I felt like I was Israel going through those cycles where God had to keep sending judges. Okay, you don't seem to get the point. Follow me. Love me with all your heart. Okay, God, we love you. You're blessing us. And then what happens? Into sin. And then God would send someone to punish them. And what would they do? Repent. And then what would they do? Okay, God, Yahweh, we love you. We love you. We're praising. We're obeying. And then what would happen? Hey, we like sin. Yeah. Over and over and over. That was a description of my life. And I was establishing patterns of how I responded to life's problems. And I was beginning to lose hope. In fact, let me share with you a little bit about what happened just so you see my point. My girlfriend broke up with me. Well, you don't feel sad? You don't feel sorry for me? This was the girl I was going to marry, Terry, the woman before Shelly. <laughs> I was going to marry this woman. She breaks up with me. How do I feel? Slightly distressed. Okay, majorly distressed. She broke my heart. I'm in college. Guess what? You actually have to do things. It was hard. I got my first F. I've never, ever, ever, ever gotten an F up until this point. Who knew anthropology could be so boring? So I decided to go surfing. I think I literally only went to 20% of the classes. I don't know why I failed. My mom got the report card. I am not spending money for you to get Fs so you can surf. You are going to community college. How did I feel? Even worse. To make things even worse, two months later, my best friend starts dating Terry. 
Oh, yeah. All of our friends, the friends I grew up with at Grace Community Church, we, were, we knew each other from this high. We were lifelong friends. And my best friend starts dating Terry, split our friend group in half. Because now, anytime we went to the movies, I was not going to go to the movies if my friend and Terry were there. So I had to go find a whole new friend group. And who was the one that got isolated? It was me. So I began to pursue friendships with other girls. And again, these were Christians. These girls were professing Christ. They were moral. But guess what? They were nominal in their faith. One girl from work, another girl from my, my neighborhood. And I didn't have any kind of inappropriate relationships with these girls, but was I pursuing Christ in those relationships? No. I began watching TV shows and movies that, while not explicitly graphic, began to push the boundaries of what was pleasing to God. I believe my conscience began to be seared. And I was able to watch things that should have offended me because I think they offended my holy God. I started using my time unwisely. I started playing video games. Anybody with teenage boys? Can you relate? You have an addiction problem. In fact, the, the psychologists are now calling gaming an addiction. It's a disorder. It's not their fault. It's a medical condition. Yeah. Good luck with that. I began watching shows late into the night. What was I trying to do with entertainment? Numb my mind. Numb a broken heart. I began buying computers, laptops. I began buying musical instruments, keyboards. In fact, I even used ministry as the reason why I was doing it. I can remember one time at the, at the peak of this problem, <laughs> being on stage down in the pit, the, the basement of the youth room, playing keyboards for the band. And I, you could not see me. I literally had three keyboards here, two keyboards here, and a rack of keyboards here. It was like I was in this little keyboard prison rocking out for Jesus. Why did I buy all those things? Because my heart was still hurting. And I was hoping to find some satisfaction in those things. All I ended up doing is getting into debt. And this whole time, consider this. I'm regularly going to church. I have a discipler who is weekly asking me how I'm doing. And what do you think I'm telling him? I'm fine. I'm doing okay. Occasionally, I even told the truth. I'm struggling. And he would pray with me and he would try to help me. If you knew me back then, you would have thought, Chris is doing fine. He's going through a rough patch. I was serving in ministry. I was discipling people. Well, I slowly became convinced that I surely could not be a Christian. After all, how could I be a Christian because it didn't seem like I was spiritually growing out of my sin patterns. I, it seemed like I was sinning more than having victory. And when faced with life's challenges, with life's problems, I didn't always turn to Christ. Sometimes I chose my own selfish desires. And guess what? I paid the price. You say, well, Chris, how? How did you pay the price? Well, generally, I became anxious, depressed, sad. My countenance had fallen Joyless, very minimal joy. 
in my mind, I was worried. I was like, am I ever going to find another girl like that? Am I going to pass college? What happens if these people in this church find out that I'm not really who I'm presenting myself to be? I felt defeated. Physically, I became sleepless. You ever had a season of sleeplessness? What does sleeplessness, regardless of what causes it, again, I had it last week because of my heartburn because I was eating more dessert than actual edible food. What does sleeplessness do to your body? Does it affect you mentally and emotionally? Absolutely. It was sleepless. In fact, I was so stressed out that I was probably physically sick about 40% of the time. My mom had to take me in to get checked for ulcers. That's how bad it got. In fact, it wasn't until my pastor, Dr. John MacArthur, taught a series on Sunday nights on select chapters in the book of Romans that I began to understand the doctrine of spiritual growth. And again, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to apply this beautiful doctrine, what we call spiritual growth or progressive sanctification. But this was a turning point for me because all of a sudden I heard the word of God being explained that was showing me this is why you're struggling. This is why you feel the way you do. You feel this way because you're experiencing the consequences of sinful decisions. And why did you make those sinful words and sinful actions? Because in your heart... In your mind, you believed that that was what was going to make you happy. You were living in the shadow of the cross even. As a Christian, you were living for yourself. And Dr. MacArthur began to walk us through this beautiful doctrine called sanctification. It's critical that we understand what the Bible teaches about sanctification. Because if we don't understand how God grows us spiritually, then we might be tempted to continue to make sinful decisions. Each fork of the road, when life throws its troubles and its problems to us, what does the Bible say how we should respond to life's problems? Do you believe that this book has solutions for every type of problem and trouble that you might encounter? Do you? If that's true, then why do you and I not consistently do it? It's a challenge, isn't it? And I'm not just accusing you. I am equally, equally <laughs> at fault, struggling with this as well. So knowing truth is not enough if we don't apply it. And I'm convinced that those of us who grew up in these type of Bible-rich environments, we know a lot of truth. Praise God that we are well taught. Are you thankful for that? I mean, I rejoice that we are at a church that is well taught. My concern is I wonder how many of us know how to consistently do what we know. And so when I encounter an anger issue in my heart and my life, I understand that anger is sinful. It's either sinful, it's either righteous, unrighteous, or it's what? There's only two types of anger. It's unrighteous or what? Righteous. I know what the Bible says. So how come I keep allowing unrighteous anger to rule in my heart? How come I keep getting impatient with my kids and my wife? 
I mean, I was preparing this message today. Shell and I had an argument last night. And I'm working on this message, and I'm going, I need to go ask for forgiveness. How can I get up in front of the church and preach on sanctification when I'm not even practicing it in my own marriage? So I pushed the pause button on my study. I went and found my wife, brought her in, spanked her a couple times, got it resolved. Actually, it was the other way. Wait, was it the other way around? Why do I still struggle with these things? How much counseling do I do? How much discipling do I do? Do I know what the Bible says? Can I quote verses? So why is it that we still struggle to do these things? Well, I think that's why we need to study this important doctrine. And there's a reason why this message is first, before we get to the other things that Mike and I have the privilege to talk about, to depression and anger. Mike's going to talk about life-dominating sins next week, about forgiveness, about worry and anxiety. Because if we don't understand this critical doctrine, which really becomes the foundation of how to think about all of those other issues, then, then my concern is that all we will do in the series is gather more knowledge. And we won't be committed to strive to apply it. So that's my hope and prayer for you and really the purpose of this series. Mike and I want to help you think through God's solutions to some of life's most challenging problems. You've got that hand out there. You can see all of those topics and when they're going to be taught. Because I believe that if we take God at his word, if we repent of our sin, if we willingly, humbly submit to God and his instructions, I believe that there is hope and help for all of us. Amen? Christ has the power to break the cycles of sin. So let's take a look briefly at this doctrine of spiritual growth. Now, anytime I use the word spiritual growth, you can, it's almost synonymous with sanctification. Okay, so sometimes we'll use spiritual growth. Sometimes I'll use sanctification, really talking about the same thing. And in order to do that tonight, I just want to answer three questions to help us understand sanctification. So let's look at this first question. What is sanctification? And I know we've been well taught, but I don't want to just move ahead, assuming we all know. Sanctification is the biblical doctrine of spiritual growth. And in general, if we were to define it, it simply means to be set apart. To be set apart for a holy purpose. It usually refers to how the believer is made holy. How a believer is transformed into the image of Christ. Separated to the service of God. And when you think about some of the synonyms that we use... For sanctification, you might, in fact, some of our translations even will use these at different times in the Bible, depending on what translation you use. You might see the word consecration or consecrate. You might see the word dedication. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were constantly taking items and doing what with those in the temple for temple worship? What were they doing? Purifying them, cleansing them, consecrating them. What were they doing? They were taking something that was dirty, cleansing it, setting it apart from that which is dirty, and then using it in the service of a holy and righteous God in a way that was pleasing to him. And that's really how it's, it's used a lot of times in the Old Testament. We also, another synonym we might use is purify. So all of those help us to understand what sanctification is. And sanctification has three aspects to it. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. But the Bible speaks of it. Have you ever wondered why sometimes the Bible talks about sanctification as a past tense event? Sometimes it talks about it as something you're supposed to do right now. And sometimes 
it talks about sanctification as something that's going to happen in the future. Well, the question is, which is it? The answer is yes. It's all three. And so it's three aspects. Positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, and perfected sanctifications. What is positional sanctification? Simply talking about that, that sanctification has a definitive beginning at regeneration. And so you think of that passage, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We know this one, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, then what? He is a new creature. What does that mean? At the moment you are in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? So have a spiritual life. Okay, so what do we call that? If Regeneration. Does a non-Christian have a spiritual life in Christ? No. So at the moment a person repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into them and they enter into union with Christ as Lord and Savior. God justifies them, declares them righteous legally, imputes to them the righteousness that is in Christ. And what does God do with the sinfulness of man in that justification process? He takes that sin and puts it where? On Jesus. Justification happens by God alone. It is a once, one-time event, once for all. You have absolutely nothing to do with justification. But at the same time, God is justifying positionally. What is he also doing? He's sanctifying. When he justifies you, he's also setting you apart. He's purifying you. And so that's what Paul means when he says that if you are, have union in Christ, you are a new creature. What tense is that? Is he looking past, present, or future? He's saying it happened then. Are you a new creature now? Yes, you're a new creature now. And what will you be for all of eternity? A new creature. Well, that's confusing. That involves all of them. How about 1 Corinthians 6.11? 1 Corinthians 6.11, where Paul says, and you were sanctified. He's talking about the past tense. Acts 20.32 is another passage where, where Paul talks about it in the, in the past tense. Or excuse me, where Luke talks about it in the past tense. It's a past tense. So when we're talking about positional sanctification, that simply happens at the moment you become a Christian. That is where sanctification begins. But it doesn't stop there. Because now we move into what we are all as believers in right now, which is progressive sanctification. And when we're talking about progressive sanctification... We're just talking about sanctification increasing progressively throughout a believer's life. So if sanctification means to be set apart, to be transformed into the image of Christ, to be set apart for service unto the Lord, to progressively be sanctified means when I become a Christian, what is my spiritual maturity? It's here. How is my service? What's my knowledge? What's my usefulness? But as I grow in Christ over life, what should happen to all of that? It should grow. And grow, and grow, and grow. And so when Paul says in Romans 12, and do not be conformed to this world, but, what? By the renewing of our minds, what? Be transformed. Is that past, present, or future? Be transformed. If I say be seated, what do I mean? 
Be seated tomorrow? No, be seated means what? Now. And when you sit, stay seated. It actually has the idea of a present continuous. That's a little grammatic for some of us. Present tense continuous. Be transformed and stay that way. Continue to be transformed. And of course, from that text, where does that transformation begin? On the outside or the inside? Does sanctification start on the outside or the inside? It starts on the inside. That's what Paul means. So Wayne Grudem, I think I have this definition. I, I love his systematic theology. It just makes things very simple. And in sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Who is at work in sanctification? God or man? Who is it? I'm trying to trick you. Joint venture. But even that is a little bit unclear. Is it possible for you to be sanctified on your own if God hadn't positionally sanctified you in the very beginning? No. And so is sanctification something that you are to do? Yes. But it's also something that God does. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. I love what Dale Johnson says. He says, becoming in practice what God has declared us in truth. So when it says you are a new creature, do you feel always like a new creature in Christ? No. He has declared you are a new creature in Christ. You're no longer a slave to your sin. All those songs we sung, I am dead to sin and alive to him, my Savior. I'm alive, I'm free. But the reality is I don't always live like one who is enslaved to Christ. And so that's what he's trying to talk about. Sanctification is this process where God is at work in you and you are cooperating with God. And in that, what is happening? Making you more and more what he has already declared you to be. Does that make sense? Hopefully, if not, we'll all continue and you'll understand. So you have this positional, which is past. You have this progressive, which is more the idea of present tense. And then you have this future, which we call perfected sanctification. Simply talking about sanctification that's going to be brought to perfect completion at the end of our life. So you have a passage like 1 John 3, 2. And again, there are like, 20 verses for each of these that I could give you. I just, I'm just giving you one example for each just to show you. Where John says, we will be, when we see him, we will what? Be like him. What tense is that? When we see him, implying what? Has it happened yet? No, it's coming. In fact, that's what we're hearing on Sunday mornings. Hey, did you know Jesus is coming back? Did you know that? I was just checking. So what does this talk about? It simply means when we get to heaven or when Christ comes back, we will be perfectly sanctified. What's another theological term we use to describe that? Anyone know? Glorification, where we will be glorified. So when does sanctification begin? Here's your quiz. You don't get dessert if you don't get it right. When does it begin? At regeneration. 
Sanctification is not the same thing as justification. They're two different things, but they're both, we both receive the benefit of them through union with Christ. So sanctification begins at the moment of regeneration where we're declared righteous uh, and, and God begins that work. And then what happens? Progressive is from that moment on until when? Perfected sanctification, the moment we die or Jesus comes back and we are brought into glory and perfected in both soul and then in body. And we're going to get into that. I'm going to save that for the Sunday morning series when we talk about when and how those things happen. It's a little teaser for Sunday morning. That's what sanctification is. Now, let's look at this next question. Why is sanctification important? You're saying, Chris, why do we need to spend 45 to an hour and a half? Just kidding. (laughs) Seeing if you're paying attention. Why do we need to spend 45 minutes talking about this? Well, first of all, believers are commanded to grow. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3.18. 2 Peter 3.18. 2 Peter 3.18 says, in fact, let me start in verse 17. Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior for Jesus Christ. Or, excuse me, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow. Is that a suggestion? What is that? It's a command. Who is he talking to? Believers, grow in what? The knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, nowhere in Scripture are believers told it's okay to continue in remaining sin. Can you think of a verse that says it's okay? Well, come on there, little whippersnapper. You just keep trying your best, and if you don't quite get it, it's okay. You just do the best that you can. I mean, Jesus shed his blood and gave his life so that you wouldn't have to keep, like a dog, eating your own vomit. But hey, if you want to keep doing that for a little while, that's okay. Just try your hardest. Where is that verse found? Can you find anything like that in Scripture? In fact, what do we find? The opposite of Scripture. And just for the sake of time, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, you can look, in fact, we're going to look it up a little bit later Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 is a reprimand. The writer of Hebrews says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles. What is he saying? You became a Christian, you were here. By this time you should be here. Why are you here? That's what he's saying. And then he goes on. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Solid food is for the mature. Why haven't they grown? Well, when you look at chapter 6, verse 2, you find out because they went back to all the laws and legalism and this external religious and washing the hands and the ceremony and all of that. They went back to all of that. They weren't focusing on Christ. They were focusing on righteousness through their own works. Even as Christians... We're caught in empty religion. What about 1 Corinthians 3? I love this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. 
I got this verse a lot when I was at DTS. This was the proof text that DTS used to prove that it was okay for a Christian to repent in their mind and not change on the outside. This was their proof text. 1 Corinthians 3. Love this passage. What does he say? And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Is he talking to Christians or non-Christians here? What does it mean to be an infant in Christ? Is that an unbeliever? I don't think so. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still, there it is. What does it say? What does your translation say? Fleshly. That's because you're NAS. You know what the NIV says? Worldly. You know what the King James and the New King James says? Here it is, my favorite word, carnal. Carnal. Demon spawn. It has that idea. It's like you're in the world. You probably celebrate Halloween and like Harry Potter. You do, don't you? Carnal! You're still fleshy. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshy? And are you not walking like mere men? Like unbelievers who know no better? The, the natural man without the spirit of God in him? You're acting just like them. The jealousy and the strife. Where is the love of Christ in you? I gave you milk. Now moms, when you give your child milk, what happens to your child? I've been feeding you milk for like five years and you're still like 10 inches tall. I don't know what's going on. Is that normal? No, when you give them milk, what happens, mom? They grow until they get his size. Go ahead, stand up for us. This is what happens when you feed your child properly. Boom, there it is. Thank you very much. Turn around, show everybody. Wave. <laughs> Boom. There it is. Growth. And what is he saying? Are they on milk? Yes. Should they still be on milk? No. No. It's condemnation. Now, just to be clear, this is not to say that Christians won't struggle. They will. Sometimes it seems like for every two steps I take toward Christ, I take one backward. Can anyone relate to that? I'm like, I thought I dealt with this sin problem, and it came back again. What in the world? I thought I was done with you. The scriptures are clear that there is no excuse for immaturity. No excuse. In fact, what is the only excuse for immaturity? What did Paul, Paul start with? Meat or milk? When is the only time that you're allowed to be immature as a Christian? 
Think it through. When you're young and new in the Lord. In fact, he even says that you're not even ready for meat yet. That's why I gave you milk. That's healthy. That's right. So that's really the only time that we're allowed to be immature. And then as we grow, what happens? We, we grow out of that immaturity over time. Now, does the Bible tell us when that is supposed to happen? Does it say after two years and three months and 11 days, you are on meat? Does it say that? So you don't say that either. Because you're not God and you're not the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have a Christian who's been in the faith for 10 years and they're still on milk, do you think you could encourage them? Hey, buddy, I think it's time to put the sippy cup away. <laughs> right? I think maybe I can help you grow. Believers are commanded to grow. Why else is sanctification important? Because believers are commanded to be like Christ. Romans 8, 28, we know this verse well. Romans 8, 28, we can quote it by heart. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, here it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of the pastor. To become conformed to the image of the best Christian you know. Is that what it says? To become predestined to be conformed to the image of whom? Christ. Do you understand why this point is important? It's important that we understand the purpose of growing. It's not enough just to grow. We don't grow just for growth's sake. Because otherwise, we're going to be just like what people group in the New Testament who grew just for themselves. In fact, the law wasn't enough. So what did they do? They began adding extra laws. They were growing. They were spiritually growing. Who were they spiritually growing for? Themselves. Do you understand how important this is? The Bible does not command you to grow, to be sanctified, to be set apart, simply to be more religious, to be a better Christian. It says grow so that you will be conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. Is that your heart? You're not trying to impress me or them. Who are you trying to please? The Lord. So that's why this is important. It's, it's an essential element of sanctification that we understand it's Christ and Christ alone. I think sometimes we need to stop and make a list. I think you and I need to give ourselves homework. You go home tonight, you get out a piece of paper, and you get on your knees, and you beg God, God, what are the three to five ways that I am least like Christ? How am I unlike my Lord? I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't even see it. I don't even see my sin. I have to beg God, God, show me. Help me to see it. I'm not like Jesus, and it doesn't bother me. It should bother me more. Why doesn't it bother me that I'm not like Christ? 
When's the last time you've done that, Christian? And so Ken gives us a personal sanctification project. And we talk about it for a couple of weeks. And for those of you that did it, did you change? Are you more like Christ? Or was it simply an exercise where you grew for growth's sake? Oh, check. I did another thing Ken asked us to. The goal is to be like the one who died for you. Why is sanctification important? C. Sanctification helps us avoid problems in life. Now we're getting somewhere. Ephesians 4, 13 to 14. Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. Turn there now. I read the first part. Let me finish that last section there. Hebrews 5. I've got to pick up the pace. Or Stephen's right. This will be a two-parter. Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. I read the first couple of verses there. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for, I'm in verse 14, but solid food is for who? The mature. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. When your one-year-old walks up to a burning red stove and says, oh, pretty. What do you do? No, whack! Why? Because their senses have not been trained to discern right from wrong. And in many ways, an, an infant, uh, uh, immature believer, they have not, by the Spirit of God, had the Word of God. Okay, this is what the Word of God says. And so, uh, yeah, I think I am going to go into debt to buy a boat. I think I am going to make that decision and date an unbeliever because, you know, he or she will probably become a Christian later. I love Jesus, but, but I believe it's right for me to date an unbeliever. And you're like, what? The Bible says don't date an unbeliever. They're like, yeah, but it's okay in this case because they're, they're, they're close. What is that? This verse is saying that if you have fed on the word of God and practiced truth that you know, what does it do to your senses? It gives you the ability to discern that is wrong. And it's so wrong, I am running the other way. Think about this. Each sinful response, each decision without true repentance, what does it make it easier or harder to do it the next time? Is it easier or harder? Without repentance, no change. It's like every step, like Lot getting closer and closer to Sodom and Gomorrah. Every decision makes it easier and easier and easier. I mean, think about this. Why was I depressed? Because the love of my life left me for my best friend. Why do you think God removed my girlfriend from my life? What do you think? <laughs> yes, that's a, yes, that is the absolute right answer. He had Shelly. I didn't know it at the time. Why do you think God removed Terry from my life? Because in that moment, what do you think I loved most? What do we call it when you love something more than you love Jesus? 
Are you an idolater? I know I am. Do you think I saw that in the moment? Do you think I saw this as a good thing? God cutting the young girl that I thought was going to be my wife out of my life? Do you think I saw that as a positive, biblical, helpful thing? No. So how did I respond? Woe's me. Oh, Terry, Terry. Jerk friend took her from me. Where are my eyes? Who am I thinking of? Who am I striving to please? Is Jesus Christ anywhere in this picture? No. I responded selfishly. And this set me up for a whole round of second bad decisions, what I call collateral collateral damage. It's the shock wave. I mean, you drop a bomb and what happens? Boom, it blows up right there, but what happens? And what happens when we make that first sinful decision? Well, fine. I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, she's, she's claiming to be a Christian. Hey, do you want to be my friend? Video games are fun. Yeah, that movie's not that bad. Fine. Anthropology is, it is idiocy. I don't know who invented it, but it should be expelled from every university in America. How did it affect my thinking? You can see how this goes. It affected my work performance. I actually had my first negative work review because of this. Because in that moment, when I am selfish and thinking about me, how does it affect my ability to be a waiter and serve others? I would start showing up late. I didn't do my job properly. Why? Because who am I training myself to think of first? Me. And so the second decision, the third decision, the fourth decision, and every domino, tick, 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 tick. I'm going farther and farther down this road. The fork, I chose me, not God. And I look and I go, how did I get here? I wonder. Can you relate? Maybe it wasn't a girlfriend or a boyfriend. But maybe it was something else where you made that decision and it set you down a path. I started buying more things. I got into more debt. I'm like, well, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. What was I thinking? Well, that's the problem, Chris. You weren't thinking biblically. You were thinking, what is going to make you happy? So in order to deal with that, what did I do? I numbed the mind even more. In fact, that was the only time in my life I've ever been drunk. My friend came home from Marine boot camp, and I literally drank a bottle of vodka just to see what would happen. I have never been so miserable in my life. I thought I was going to die. I wanted to die. Even closing my eyes didn't help. It was horrible. I'm like, why do people do this? How did I feel the next morning? Sick. How did my heart feel? How did Christian Chris feel? There's no take-backs. Does this make me an alcoholic? 
I am American Indian. Maybe that's my problem. Just added more and more bad feelings. The cycle continued. What does Romans 3.23 say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Psalm 38.3 says, There is no health in my bones because of my sin. There is no health in my bones because of sin. Verse 17, my sorrow is continually before me. Verse 18, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Psalm 38 is just one of many that talks about this. Is it possible? Is it possible that many of the, the physical and emotional symptoms that we experience are directly related to unrepentant sin patterns in our life? Is that possible? Yes. Notice I didn't say all. I said some. Did my wife get a brain tumor because of sin in her life? Maybe. I don't think so. I don't think she thinks that. Now, did she get a brain tumor because of sin? Did Adam and Eve have brain tumors before the fall? No. After the fall, what came into being? Sickness, brain tumors, physical death. So from that perspective, a brain tumor is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. But is her brain tumor a direct result of her sin? Not necessarily. It could be. We don't know. I don't think so. So not all physical maladies are a direct result of sin. But many of them are and can be. Can stress over sin lead to migraines or ulcers? Yes. Can repeated patterns of sin lead to deep sadness, depression, and sleeplessness? Yes. Well, let's go to D. Without sanctification, we're not useful for the building up of the body of Christ, of the church. Ephesians 4.16 pictures this, this idea of the church as a body of Christ. We're working properly in the body of Christ. We help others grow. I mean, think about that. If I have a knee problem and I'm limping on my knee, how does that affect the rest of my body? Some of you are like, I know, I know exactly what it does. I'm dealing with this right now. And then what do you do to overcompensate? And then my hip hurts, and then my back hurts, and I have to walk like this now. It doesn't feel very good. Don't laugh at me. Yeah. Right? Think about the body of Christ. Some of you, one of you out there is a knee and you are not growing spiritually. You're not healthy. How does your lack of health affect the rest of us? Does it? Absolutely. Now we're picking up your slack. The gifts that God's given you, you're not doing because who are you thinking of first? You, not Christ, not others. It's not the love of God and the love of others. You're sick spiritually. You're not growing. In fact, through this whole year and a half season of my life, if I could chart my ministry involvement in my service of others, which is here, against my self-focused activity, focused on pleasing myself, which is here, it probably would be like this. In the beginning, it didn't seem all that big a deal, but over time, as I was getting further and further into these patterns, I stopped serving less and less, and what was I serving? Me, 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 to the point where I basically dropped out of ministry. I wasn't serving. I wasn't evangelizing. In fact, if anything, people looked at me. I was the opposite of a godly Christian testimony. 
Why is it so difficult to build up other Christians through love and service when we're not growing significantly? Because self-pleasers focus on pleasing self, right? And then E, without sanctification, we're tempted to lose hope that we can change. 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10 talks about laboring and striving for godliness because we trust God and we fix our hope on him as our savior. Every cycle of sinful, self-focused decisions and responses to life's problems brings more hopelessness. Why? Because we take our eyes off of our hope, capital H hope, who is what? Christ. Where did I put my hope? Finding another girlfriend. Buying another computer. Numbing the pain, avoiding the truth. Well, the third question, what are the essential characteristics of biblical sanctification? Well, these are pretty simple. You've got them all listed there. The Godhead is active. Think about that. Every member of the Trinity is involved in the sanctification process. According to John 15, 2, if you're connected to the vine and you're not bearing fruit, what does the Father do? He prunes you. Why? Come on, you horticulturalists. Did I say that right? It almost sounded like I was cursing you. Horticultural. Anybody a horticulturalist? Why do you prune an apple tree? Because what does it do? Makes it bloom. Does it hurt when God the Father prunes us? Yes. But what does it do? It brings fruit. Fruitfulness. How about Christ? The Son washes the church by the pure water of the word, Ephesians 5.25. What about the Spirit? The Spirit matures us as we behold Christ's face in the mirror of his word, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And of course, what does Galatians 5.16 say? If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of what? Carnality. Love it. Worldliness, fleshliness. And any attempt to change that ignores the Godhead, listen, any attempt to change that ignores the Godhead is simply going to produce Pharisees. Behavior modification, external change. Why? Because without God, there is no change. So that's why sanctification is not like, oh, God is working and we're working. No. Sanctification is God is working, therefore I am working with him. You see the difference? Every member of the Trinity is at work. We must understand that sanctification is first a miraculous inward transformation of the affections of man, of what I delight in, rather than the reformation of external behavior. Think about this. The gospel brings my dead heart to life. It reforms my mind and my desires, which in turn redirects my will and my actions. The gospel changes me on the inside, which in turn brings change to how I speak and how I act. And the danger here is if we don't go and rely on God, active in sanctification, all we're doing is taking pharisaical fruit and stapling them to a dead tree. Whether it's parenting or whether it's in our own life. So the Godhead is active, but man must also be active. God's work is indispensable, but also man must cooperate and obey. Again, it's both God's work and it's man's duty. If we had time, we could look at Philippians 2. Ken just taught us through this. It's probably the most clear passage where God's work and man's duty are both side by side. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. 
So what does that look like? Well, number one, we must put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8, 13. That's what it says. Put to death deeds of the body. Matthew 5, 29. When your right eye or your right hand causes you to stumble, what do you do? It's okay. Just try harder next week. Is that what it says? No, you cut that sucker off. You chuck it from you. Get radical. Two, we must cleanse ourselves from all sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says. How? John 1, 9. Repent. Confess. Three, we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's exactly what 1 Timothy 4, 7 says. Four, we must walk in a worthy manner. Ephesians 4, 1 and verse 17. This is simply talking about practical obedience. If I know the word of God says I should obey and do that then I'm going to do that. This is what it means to walk in a worthy manner, in a way that pleases God. Five, we must put off the old self, put on the new self, Ephesians 4.22. Six, we must flee from sexual immorality. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 6.18 says. Seven, we must pursue righteousness, 2 Timothy 2.22. And eight, we must submit to the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Ephesians says we must be filled by the Spirit. Mike and I are going to help you in the weeks to come with each of these topics, show you how to do these things. That's why I'm going over them quickly. Because when we get to anger, when we get to forgiveness, when we get to these things, we're going to show you practically what is your responsibility in these areas. It's not enough just to go to church once a week and hope that you're going to grow. It's not enough just to, to read a book on something you struggle with and say, okay, I read the book. Okay, God. I know it now, I, I studied it, I struggled with lust, I read a book on lust. How come I'm not changing? It's not enough to sit there and wait for, for God to sprinkle some magic grow dust on you. Here you go, kids. Oh, me, me. <sighs> Sanctified. Purified. If only, right? Man must be active. See, the word of God must be active on both our mind and renewing our mind. And the idea here is scripture replaces error and also on our actions and habits. Again, that's exactly what James 1, 22 to 25 says, which is what? Don't just be a forgetful hearer who looks in the mirror of God's word, God's word and then does what? Walks away and forgets. Do what you know. And so that's why the word of God must be active like a mirror. So that's why in biblical counseling and discipleship, what do we use? Self-help books? Personality? Trait? Characteristics? No, what do we use? This is what the word of God says. You're saying that you believe this, and as a result of that belief, you have said that you did and said these things. Does that match up to scripture? Because what does James 1.25 say? That the doer will be what in what he does. What does it say? Blessed. Blessed. If you do the word of God, you'll be blessed. The word of God must be active. We also must understand, though, that this process is a gradual process. I think sometimes, because we are a church that teaches lordship salvation, that you don't make Christ Lord. He is Lord. And I'm thankful for that. But I think sometimes we become a little hyper-lordship, where if somebody is not growing quite fast enough, we begin to, oh, I don't know, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, make them feel bad, make them feel guilty. Like, you're not, you're not far enough along. 
You're saying, Chris, that sounds like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You just said there's no excuse for that. Is there an excuse for that? No. Are you God? Are you the Holy Spirit? Are you able to peer into the soul and, and the motives and the intentions of that individual? So we got to be patient. we got to be loving. we got to be gentle with each other because it is a gradual process. So is it okay for Christians to have a sanctification chart that looks like this? No, what is that? That's called dead, right? If you have an EKG or a, a lead line or whatever, what is it called, Shelly? The, the thing, beep, beep. What is that thing? EKG. If it's like that, what do you do? I pronounce you dead. Right? Call the undertaker, Richard says. Is it okay to have a, a sanctification chart that's like this? No. But sometimes, you know what we'll have? Something that looks like this. And so when you think about, I hunger for truth, the moment of salvation, I begin to learn truth, I begin to apply truth, I rejoice in truth, I get tempted, sin comes, I give in to sin. The Spirit of God, by the Word of God, begins to give me a broken, contrite mind, and I begin to seek truth. And as I read Scripture, I renew my mind, and what happens? God uses Scripture to replace error in my mind. I confess that sin to God and to the appropriate people. I begin to radically amputate those things practically. I begin to apply truth. I put off, I put on, trusting in God's strength. And through this repentance and forsaking of sin, what happens? Joy is new in the morning, and I rejoice in that truth. And then what happens? There's always one right around the corner, isn't there? You're either in it, just coming out of it, or it's right around the corner. Another trial. Maybe a misunderstanding of a trial. God, why would you give my wife a brain tumor? I still don't know. I don't know why. It just revealed a whole bunch of sin in me, though. Begin to learn truth. And what happens? Notice how this is not cyclical. That's cyclical. This, when you go to a ski lift, what do you see? A gondola starts here and ends where? Like Christ. This is not a roller coaster. You don't get on, yeah, I love Jesus. Oh, I'm struggling in sin. I'm a failure. Oh, I repent. I love Jesus. Oh, no, I struggle in sin. Oh, yeah. Then where do you get off? Right there. That's not sanctification. That's going through religious motion. Progressive sanctification means God saves us. And we work to do all of these things because of God's finished work and Christ's finished work on the cross, amen? But we should end up here. It's a gradual process. And then lastly, we also know that there's a great expenditure of effort. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body, I make it my slave. In Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God and that this is our struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against what? Spiritual warfare. And so all five of these things should be active. And so from salvation to heaven, Godhead is active through this whole thing. Man is active. This whole thing is us working our duty. The word of God is active. Look at how many times it says truth, 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 truth in mind, our actions and our habits. It's a gradual process. It starts here and it gradually grows. And some of us are here. Some of us are here. Some of us are here. Those guys make me sick. They have life-dominating sins. They become a Christian. They don't struggle with it ever again. What is wrong with you? 
did you take a pill? Can I have one of those? That's not me. I'm like fighting for every inch climbing up the mountain of progressive sanctification. But I'm not the same man that I was. Praise God. And it's great expenditure of effort. Well, tonight we've answered these three questions to help us think through the doctrine of spiritual growth. And as I think back to those dark days of college, I'm so thankful not only for the lessons that I've learned, for the incredible patience of God. Aren't you so glad that God is patient with you and me? But also for the enduring hope that I had in Christ and his plan for my life. Because who would have thought that that knucklehead would ever become a pastor or a missionary or a Christian cop or a Christian waiter? If you had told me back then at age 20, you're going to become a pastor someday, I would have laughed. I would have said, you need to stop taking drugs. It does not go well with you. But God, amen? And God is using you. And God is growing you, and God is patient with you. But my challenge for you is, are you working? Are you involved? Are you growing? Because my hope is that you are. And if you're not, aren't you thankful that God says you just need to confess it, repent of it, and forsake it? Because Proverbs 28, 13 says that for those who, what? Confess and forsake their sin, what will they find? Judgment? Condemnation? Well, you got to get a little bit more before we trust you. No, what does it say? You will find what? Compassion. That's the God that we serve. So I hope that you come back next Wednesday as Mike and I begin to walk you through the sanctification process for some of these most common sin struggles that we face. And my hope for you is that you will walk away from the series better equipped to understand not only what the Bible says about these problems of life, but also how to practically put in the work and sanctification to overcome them. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about what your word says and to look at this incredibly deep doctrine of spiritual growth. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can only grow because you have already done the work and you are doing the work. And someday you will finish that work. So at the end of the day, you are not only sovereign over my salvation, justifying me. You are sovereign over my sanctification. And for that, I praise you and I thank you, Lord God. And I pray that if there's anyone in here right now that is under that cloud, anyone under here that has begun to lose hope, anyone that is in here that recognizes they have patterns that maybe they've had for years, and maybe they do feel defeated, they do feel trapped, Lord God, would you show them that there is a better way? Would you show them that they can practically learn through repentance and faith how to walk in a worthy manner to please you? Help us to be more like Christ, that you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.